Uh, we're going to actually read the Word of God. I think I forgot to last week. But it's because I knew you knew the passage so well that what was the point, right? <clears throat> um, so this morning you'll see our uh, passage there. We're only going to talk about 18 through 23, but I wanted to include 28 through 30 because it kind of fills out the idea of being glorified, which is uh, started here in uh, verses 18 through 23. So, beginning with verse 18, for, and we'll talk in a minute about that for, because I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now those 18 through 21 is what we're going to focus on, but I want to read the rest of this for the context. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so, in verse 28, we get some background, you might say. Uh, we go back into eternity to see where this originated. This idea that we would finally be conformed to Christ as His children and that we would be glorified with Him. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And here's that purpose. For those whom he foreknew, that is, loved beforehand, set his affections on, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O oh Lord, give us grace. We are helpless in ourselves. We can do nothing, Lord, but by the work of your mighty spirit. We thank you for your eagerness always to bless your people, to equip them, grow them, and form them, form us all into the image of Christ. We count on that right now. And Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Excuse me, I don't usually drink water in the pulpit. It's kind of an annoyance to me, but I took an antihistamine this morning, so. Hmm. Uh, just to, uh, by way of introduction here, we talked last week about 
sonship, that is, that we are children of God, especially toward the end of verse 17, that we are co-heirs with Christ. We inherit the same thing that Christ inherits, which is an amazing, astounding thing, that whatever he gets, whatever he earned in living his perfect life, he pulls us alongside of him and we receive the same thing. And you have to think of Christ as God and man. We don't receive anything that belongs to God, but we receive everything that belongs to his humanity because we are made perfect into his image. Um, we, he's the firstborn resurrected, and we're going to be the many that are resurrected right alongside of him and bear the same glory that he has. Astounding. Then in verse 18, as he says there, we're co-heirs if we suffer in order to finally be glorified, then he compares our sufferings with the glory. But here's the important thing to think about what we talked about last week and this week. This is an extension of this description of your inheritance as children of God. Don't divide the passages, in other words. We talked about being sons and daughters of the king. Uh, this is still the subject, and now we're enlarging to find out more about the inheritance that we will have, more about the glory that is coming to us in Christ Jesus. That's why it starts with four, because this is what, how I regard it. And you'll notice our two uh, points. Uh, uh, the third point, I'm sorry, you always have a third point. Today you don't. You get to go home early. Um, great by comparison, great by proportions. So great by comparison is just verse 18, and then verses 19 through 21 uh, will do great by proportions. Now, when he says the sufferings are not to be worth compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us, he's not talking about the glory that we'll have when we die to go with and be with Jesus. Now, that is a wonderful thing that happens to us. It's not talked about much in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, Philippians 1, two places almost... Uh, the only places that actually talk about going to be with Jesus. Everything is focused on the last day when Jesus comes and we receive our new bodies. That's the hope of the New Testament. Now, when we go to be with him, it's going to be glorious. We're going to be surrounded by a host of, of angels and, and other described beings. We'll be, we're called the spirits of the righteous made perfect, which is going to be a happy thing that will be sinless. But we are bodiless, and part of what happens in heaven is people uh, protest, you might say, and say, how long will it be until you fix everything? How long will it be until you vindicate us and yourself? So heaven is not quite as restful as we might think. In its joy, there is still an eagerness for what's coming next, even in heaven. Okay? So what comes next? 
the glory that we have when Jesus comes again. And of course, the suffering he's talking about is any suffering in this life from persecution to loneliness to disaster and disease. And he's comparing the one with the other to magnify how great the glory is. So first, let's just imagine that Tinsley Miller and Martha Fazakerly are sitting on a seesaw and they're down, okay, seesaw's up. And here comes running Connor Williams, left guard of the Dallas Cowboys, 6'5", 320 pounds, and he jumps on that end of the seesaw. What's going to happen to those two little girls? Where they're going to be? Where would they stop? That's the question, right? They would be launched into orbit, probably. Elon Musk, go try and find a better rocket than that, right? And then you can just imagine, Houston, this is the space station. There are two small girls playing dolls on a satellite that's passing by us. No, ma'am, all three of us see them, right? Those kids are up there gone. There's no comparison between these two tiny girls and this huge lineman. That's the point he's trying to make. Now, more to uh, an illustration, maybe a little closer to home. Suppose you had some financial difficulty or you're just wanting to add some to your present income. So you're going to work construction on Saturday and you're going to work with some bricklayers in the middle of August uh, in uh, let's say Texas, because Texas can have, as we had one time, 50 days over 100 degrees. So we're going to be in Texas for this one. So you start at 7 o'clock. It's hard, back-breaking work. Your unused muscles are just killing you by lunch. Heat index goes to 110. In the afternoon, you really think you're not going to make it, right? You had to stop and rest over and over. You sweated profusely. If you're a woman, you glowed brightly. Um, your hands hurt. Your legs and arms hurt. Your back hurt. Your eyes and head ache. You almost black out a couple of times, finally it's over, and you come home, and people say, you just look like you're about to die. And so, how much did you make doing this? You said, 200. I said, well, it's pretty good, you know, $25 an hour, not, not too bad. And he said, no, not 200. 200 million dollars I got. 200 million. And then that's not all. I have a brand new, fully furnished, 50,000 foot home, a block from what's the Colonial Golf Course in Fort Worth, Texas, three new cars, a lifetime membership, a jet and a yacht for one day of hard work. I think that's a little out of proportion, right? I don't care how much you've suffered in this world. The glory that you're going to receive is going to be that much greater than any suffering that you experienced. It, it outshadows it, and you look at it and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, this is how great it is compared to whatever suffering you may have had. You can throw in any kind of suffering, make it all day, every day for 85 years. And even then, your suffering will be like taking one of those little baby spoons, which is one of my favorite little things to put in a baby's mouth. And there's one grain of sand on it, and that's your suffering. And you just 
turn it out like that and you look this way and there's your glory and it's a beach that goes on forever. That's the comparison. There is no comparing this present suffering with what is to come. In Romans 8, this very chapter began with the declaration that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None at all. But in the middle of suffering, you feel like there is some condemnation. It doesn't, it doesn't fit, it doesn't gel that the abundant, un eternal love God has for me ends up this way. But this is our pathway. Remember, it's the pathway that our Lord traveled. It's the pathway every believer follows. And it is one of suffering, as he says here. We're all completely drawn into those stories, you know, where the protagonists face tremendous odds and fierce opposition. They suffer loss and failure but they overcome it in the end. And whether you like it or not, that's your story. That is your story. Overcoming odds, overcoming enemies that are far greater than us, that want to destroy us. But by God's grace, it's every person's story. It's the very story of creation. Suffering that leads to glory that is off the map, off the charts. So, it's great by comparison. And verse 18 talks about the glory. That's something of the suffering, but it talks about the glory. And it says, this glory is revealed... And the, the preposition, is, it reads, revealed to us in uh, the scripture, but it's the word that you can translate into or toward. It's, it's revealed into. It reaches out and includes us in its radiance. This glory apprehends us. It's bestowed upon us like a gift. It doesn't lead us out, it doesn't leave us outside, you might say, the glory embrace, but you become a part of this glory. You are a participant in this glory. You're not in the stands, you're in the game in terms of glory. You're not part of the audience, you are playing the concert. Creation is the audience, and Scripture teaches us that the angels are the audience to behold what God is doing for sinners. And it's the unveiling of the true nature of Christians in that day. One of my favorite passages is 1 John 3. When he's talking about our sonship and he says that it does not presently seem that we're the children of God. That's pretty practical, isn't it? You can say, yeah, yeah. I may think, about it. you don't look like a child. Or you don't look like a king or queen. I don't feel like a king or queen come, you know, who's, who's coming. But he says, in, when he comes, we will be made like him. We will be conformed to him. And the last day, as one writer says, is a public show of who and what we really are. 
We're pale shadows of our future selves. I've read it uh, twice so far, um, The Lord of the Rings. One day I was caught in the closet changing clothes, supposed to be out helping Kay get ready for friends. And she opened the closet door and I said, and I was reading Lord of the Rings. (laughs) I shouldn't have been. It was a great part of Lord of the Rings at that point. Um, It was a funny, funny (laughs) incident. But in that uh, magnificent trilogy, the uh, future king appears, but he doesn't look like the future king. His name is called Strider. And he's a pretty rough-looking character, if you've seen the movie. Seems appropriate. Uh, and he's, he's kind of dark. He's covered up, but he's a great fighter. He's, he's faithful. He's noble. He, he pulls alongside the hobbits and, and helps them. <laughs> but nobody knows that he is Aragorn. Elisar, high king of Arnor and Gondor, he's like the human being of all human beings in Middle-earth, this Strider, you know. And every one of you is Strider. Every single one of you is Strider. You're undercover. You're, you're kings and queens. You're incognito royalty walking around. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Mighty angels are serving you and protecting you that you might take your final reign as kings and queens in the earth. So this glory is coming and you are participants in some way, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, this humble body becomes a glorious body. This weak body becomes a powerful body. And we take our reign in that day. So it's great by comparison, but it's also great by proportions uh, in verses 19 through 21. Verse 19 starts again with that word for the creation was subjected. And the feel of it is this. It can't be compared, present suffering can't be compared to the glory. And here's the feel, because even the creation awaits that glory. See, that's the feel of this. Do you understand? The create the, everything you see is waiting for you when you will be revealed in glory. That's how great this glory is. That's the point Paul is making here. He's dazzling his readers with the attractiveness and the beauty of this future glory. Eagerly awaiting. Uh, Philip's translation, many have quoted, the creation is on tiptoe, right? Breathless with anticipation for what is coming down the pike, craning forward like an, an, an owner would watch his or her horse cross the Kentucky Derby finish line neck and neck, eager, jumping up and down. That's the feel of all creation always. That's the personification. 
That's what creation is waiting for. Why? Why is creation so eager? What's the big deal, creation? Why is this so important to you? We could ask. Well, because human beings are in direct relationship to the rest of the world. We're the key element in creation's relationship to God. Because we're entrusted with the care of creation. We represent creation to God, but we also represent God to creation because we're his image. We're to convey to creation God's wisdom and goodness. We are bound together, and so where we go, creation goes. You might say, when we went in the ditch, creation went into the ditch. And the key word here is futility. The futility of creation. It was subjected to this, not because of its own will, but it happened to creation. We made it happen to creation. It's interesting in Romans chapter 1 when it says that we rejected God in creation. He revealed himself in creation and we would not honor him and thank him. But it says that we became futile in our thinking. Worshiping the creature rather than creation. Well, when we became futile in our thinking and began doing that, creation was subjected to futility because that's not what it was made for. Um, the curse pronounced on creation after the sin of Adam and Eve uh, is reflected here. This is the outworking of that curse. Creation subjected to futility. And it's the futility of creation not fulfilling its purpose, the reason it's here. It's not functioning as it was designed to do. And we're told that the Hubble Space Telescope launched in 1990, you remember, they were looking for the images and they were blurry. It was like me in the fourth grade before I got glasses, couldn't see the chalkboard. When I came home from uh, getting glasses, I said, I can see leaves. I can see individual bricks. I was just saying that out loud because I'd never seen all that, you know, because I was nearsighted. Well, the Hubble needed glasses, you might say. There was a miscalculation in the grinding of its primary uh, mirror. It was off by one-fiftieth the width of a human hair. If I had a nickel for every time I've measured that, you know, but um, one fiftieth of the human hair, that's how much it was off in the grinding of it. And it's not feasible to replace the whole thing or the whole mirror. So the astronauts went up there, you know, they spacewalked, they put a series of five mirrors and they corrected it like that. So creation lives in present futility not being able to accomplish what it was made for. Hubble, all of that work, all that technology, get up there, we can't see anything, right? The futility of it. Creation, you might say, was wrenched from God when humanity abandoned God and it was cut off relationally from God, even though God continues to sustain it. 
And it's because we see creation only in terms of ourselves. We don't see it as a trust from God to glorify God. We don't dedicate creation to God and see it as a way to obey God. We don't enjoy creation in fellowship with God. That is human beings in general. We enjoy it instead of God, in place of God. We use creation for ourselves as we ignore the God that made it for us. And that's futility for creation. And in fact, you might say we kidnap creation. And so it's like creation is in this little hut in the woods cut off from its true family relationship to God. And the real sad thing, creation's make-believe master can't even keep himself alive. Creation ends up eating him up anyway. He, he returns to dust. What a pathetic kidnapper you are. <laughs> that you can't even keep yourself alive. You know What supposed rulers we have become of creation when we ourselves die. I love the words of John Chrysostom in the fourth uh, century. He says, so creation became corrupted. Uh, the earth, all the disease and the, the disasters that occur, the, the tornadoes and all the things that we suffer, all the uh, co eruptions of creation. He says, how did it get that way? Why did it happen? And he says to his congregation and all people, including himself, he says, because of you. You're the reason creation is like it is. But it's not permanent, and God's going to restore creation even as he corrupted creation or we corrupted creation. And so it even says here that creation was subjected in hope. Notice that in verse uh, 20, it was subjected to futility in hope that it would be set free. So from the beginning, there was a hope that this would not always be the case. And what is it waiting for? It's waiting for the glory of the children of God. There's liberty, there's freedom for creation in that final day. And the background is Exodus, right? When we are delivered from corruption, when our dying bodies are transformed into immortal, never-dying bodies, creation will be delivered as well. So you might say that creation is in Egypt. Uh, we're, we're like the engine and we're driving creation. When we fell off the tracks into the ravine, the whole train fell into the ravine and now God's going to put the engine back and he's going to put the whole train back in the last day. And some of you may have heard me say this, but when you see creation right now, and it's glorious, I, anybody that knows me, I'm a constant student of creation. I just, I just can't get enough of it. Uh, it's beautiful. But if this is creation in bondage, you might say, if this is creation in a wheelchair, what's creation going to be like when it gets out of the wheelchair and starts running across the field? Who knows? Who knows what it's going to be like? So creation, you see, is longing for wise and holy care of its restored kings and queens, us. That's what it's waiting for. 
And glory, glory in this case means glorious sovereign rule, sharing Messiah's rule over the new creation. And the whole creation is waiting for the splendid reign of splendid human beings who will then be able to and fully capable of that rule. God is really going to save the planet. And in some way, we're going to participate in that. You know, you hear New Agers sometimes say that the problem with this world is human beings on the earth. And maybe when human beings leave, then the earth can, we can quit spoiling the earth and the earth will recover. Now, true, the reduction of toxic emissions due to COVID gave some weight to that thinking, right? The less we were out and about, the better creation did. But God's ultimate solution is not to remove human beings from the earth. He's sticking to the original plan. He's redeeming human beings to steward the earth to maximize its beauty and its benefits. Far from removing mankind, God reinstates mankind for the sake of the earth. The earth would never escape its bondage with the removal of mankind because it's awaiting the revealing of the children of God, you see. We run categorically against that thinking. The earth's freedom and flourishing is bound to the glory of God's children. That's its freedom. That's its flourishing. So it doesn't need the removal of human beings. It needs the renewal of human beings. It doesn't await their demise and their absence, but their resurrected presence. That's what creation is longing for. And thankfully, creation is not determined by the puny minds of human beings. Even in its futility, it's still God's planet. It's nobody else's. And in his mighty hand, for his mighty purposes, man only thinks it's his. God will save his people. He will save his planet Earth. That's where it's going, by God's grace. Now, I want to say just a final word uh, as an application, because it, it, as you hear all of this, you realize that creation is awaiting in our glory, our care and our involvement in creation. It's suffered under our godless uh, uh, care of creation, you might call care. And uh, now it awaits our godlike care of creation, which points us to an interesting thing that work is going to be a vital part of our happiness and our glory in the last day. We tend to think of work, rightly so, because as God said in Genesis 3, you're going to work and you're going to toil. It's going to be hard. And we know the stresses of work and the burdens of work. You know your own failures and others' failures, the frustrations of work. And our response tends to be work in heaven? Work in the final existence of the, the new heavens and new earth? I kind of thought it was going to be like the weekend from now on. You know, I mean, really, work's over, we're done with all this, and now it's the weekend every single day. It's Saturday, Sunday. 
You don't even have to go to church because God's already there, right? So, we're going to kick back. But our problem is that we, rightly so, associate work with the sinful parts of work or the, or the curse of work, the difficulties of work. But take those away and we have a joy and a satisfaction in work that is the same as God's. It's the same as God's. The beauty of being like God. And so the new heavens and the new earth are just constant opportunities, endeavors to discover, to build, to invent, to create, to shape. The best illustration I have of this, we have a family called the Wades in our, our church. And he, they have three boys. And Scott was telling me, or Katie, I can't remember which parent told me about this. Uh, and Kate heard about this too. For I believe it was two to three days, they said our boys were lost in the backyard building a treehouse. You couldn't, you could hardly pull them away to eat. They would eat, they'd get back to the treehouse. You'd have to call them in at night. They popped open in the morning out there building their treehouse, building their treehouse, building their treehouse. Now, they were working hard. Right? I mean, they were sweating. They were, they were lifting things they would never lift. They were going places they would never go to get materials. I mean, they were working hard. But they were lost in happiness doing it. Just lost. There's a little bit of a picture for what it will be like. We are made for this. We're made like God. And then you throw in perfect, joyful collaboration with one another. Uh, where we have unthreatened cooperation and, and the accomplishment. Do you know that we will constantly be saying just what God said in creation and he saw what he made and he said, that is good. That's our eternal words on what's happening and what we're getting to do with increasing amazing satisfaction. And I would say we don't just wait for that, but we try to enter into that even now in our work. And that's what we mainly do as we work. And it needs to be infused with that as much as possible that we do it in the presence of God. We realize its purposes. We realize how much we are in the image of God no matter what we do. Even take the garbage man. How many animals and Organisms are on earth to clean up. You think of it. Start with the vultures, etc. Okay. I mean, God does a lot of cleanup every day. There's nothing you can imagine that you can do that's not in some way a reflection of the beauty and glory of God that gives dignity and honor to what you do. And this is interesting. I close with these uh, quotes. <clears throat> uh, there's a book called Wrapped. Not W-R-A-P-P-E-D, but R-A-P-T, you know, rapt attention, absolutely focused. And in this book, they do a study of uh, 
people from all branches of life. Several it mentions uh, in the jacket. I have this book, but researchers and artists and, and uh, farmers or ranchers, you know, those kinds of people. And he says, by focusing on the most positive and, and, uh, and productive elements of any situation, you can shape your inner experience and expand your world. This is an unbeliever talking about rapt. By learning to focus, you can improve concentration, broaden your inner horizons, and most important, feel what it means to be fully alive. And I would say in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll be fully alive. We'll be wrapped, you know. We'll be focused, delighted, lost like those little boys in the endeavors that we have. Another book with a different title, same subject, Flow, right? The flow that happens. And some of you, of course, have experienced this where you, you're focused on something and you kind of open your eyes an hour later and you say, God, an hour passed. I was having a great time getting that done, right? During flow, people typically experience deep enjoyment, creativity, and total involvement with life. I think they're stumbled into creational things here. And the new creation is going to open that up like a flower that we could never have imagined. Because the glory to come it will be incomparable to the suffering that we have had. That's how we can work with anticipation and hope of what's to come. And even begin to enter into that by God's grace now. That probably can change your life as much as anything else as a believer because that's what you do most of the day, most of every week. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, bless us that we may embrace what you have called us to. As Romans 8 says, that you loved us ahead of time and, and of time and you predestined us and then you called us to yourself so that we would finally be glorified. We'd finally enter into the glory that you have for us. And so, oh Lord, we pray that you would bless us with visions of the beauty that's ours now that already has invaded us and taken us, catches us up and can be transforming even now. Uh, Lord, and then the vision for what we will have in that final day. Lord, we recognize that none of this can happen apart from Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins, standing in our place and bearing the wrath of God for us. Else we would not be facing glory. We would be facing judgment. Lord Jesus, you're our only hope. Not only do you take away condemnation and judgment, but you restore us to God and you restore us to a, a new creation and you restore us to our ultimate dignity as human beings to rule and reign your creation. Lord, that is a salvation from A to Z and we are nothing and could be nothing apart from your suffering and death in our place, bearing our sins in your body on the cross, as Peter says. We worship you. We honor you, Lord Jesus, for your great salvation. Amen.